Well, we're uh, going to be continuing uh, in this mini-series on how to live a happy life. Uh, we are going to pick back up, Lord willing, next week with First Timothy uh, as the uh, Pastor Tomlinson is taking care of his family. Um, they are out sick this week, so we're going to um, continue this uh, short series on how to live a happy life. And we've been addressing a particular problem that often arises within the church. Um, and, and that is the case of a, a discouraged Christian. The, the, the cold, distant, uh, or, or gloomy Christian. Right? And this is, a, this is a really strange thing because we know that Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. Right? Christ has saved us from sin and death. He overcame the grave through his death and resurrection. Right? He had, Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's building a kingdom that can't be shaken. And yet, a Christian may find himself or, or herself to be the most unhappy person that they know. Uh, we may even be brushing shoulders with Christians like this in our church. And, and it just feels like we bumped into a cactus when we are around them. If I'm honest, I, I feel like, you know, over the first year of me being at Deer Park Fellowship, there have been some times where I felt like I was a big cactus that people were bumping into. Um, there was this gloominess. There were, there were moments of uh, being distant and cold. And um, if I've been cold to you, I, I'm sorry. Um, But there's many reasons why a Christian can be in this, this state of sadness. Um, and, and one of those I want to address today, and it's uh, discontentment. Discontentment is often one of those reasons why we are distant, gloomy, sad Christians. Right? Dis- discontentment often arises when our present station in life, our, our circumstances... They, they aren't as we want them to be. We, we aren't getting what we want, and we, or, or, or we realize that what we do have or what we did get isn't all that it was cracked up to be, and we're discontent. Now, there's, there's holy discontentment, right? We, we live in a fallen world. There's things in life that aren't as they should be. There's sin. There's death. Right? We, it's good to hate those things, to grieve those things. But today we're, we're addressing sinful discontentment. Right? Sinful discontentment is this restlessness that's rooted in pride. It's, it's an underlying assumption that I deserve to have whatever that may be. Right? But I don't, I don't have it. I want, insert here, and I can't have it. And I'm discontent. Right? This is self-centered self-focused discontentment that takes away our joy. And so this morning, we're going to look at at the prayer of a woman who wrestled with discontentment. And her her name was Hannah. Hannah was the wife uh, of a man named Elkanah, and and she was the mother of the prophet Samuel. So if you've been in church life for any length of time, you, you know that Samuel plays a significant role in the history of the nation of Israel. He anointed King Saul and King David, and he proclaimed the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. 
at that time. But before all of this, Hannah found herself in some very dark times. Years before these these climactic stories that we all grew up learning about, there's this little woman of little reputation, unable to have children because the Lord had closed her womb and she's wrestling with discontent. There might be some of us here this morning that, that are wrestling with discontentment. You may be just wrestling and, and all you want to do is get out. And you're crying out to the Lord to be free from it, just like Hannah. In chapter 1, verse 10, she said, it says this, it says, She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And we're going we're to come back to her, um, her backstory in a moment, but, but this morning we're going to skip ahead to chapter 2. And look at what happened when Hannah got what she wanted. What happened when the Lord opened her womb and she received the son that she always wanted? That that gift that she had been asking the Lord for. And what I want us to ask ourselves this morning, especially if you're a discouraged Christian, is this. What will I do when I get what I want? What will my response be when I get out of the current circumstances that the Lord has me in, in which I find myself discontent? And what will my my response be if I don't get what I want? I mean, what if things never change? And I'd argue that there's only one right response to whatever comes our way in this life, and is to rejoice in the Lord. Anything else is idolatry. Philippians 4.4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. What we'll see in Hannah's example, and and though her path is is very imperfect, when she finally receives the, the blessing of a son from the Lord, she rejoices in the Lord. She rejoices rightly. So if we want to live a happy life, we must endeavor to rejoice rightly. Let's read our text this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord says this, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more very, so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. 
The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. My dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word and, and this opportunity that we have to, to read your word, to meditate upon the truths in it. God, help us by your spirit to understand the reality of your, your, your word and your gospel to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question is, how, how do we rejoice rightly? Well, first, you must be truly converted. In order to rejoice in the Lord, you must be in the Lord. Right? And there's evidence of Hannah's conversion in her prayer. Look at verse 1. It says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Right? If you're not a Christian here this morning and you're discontent, you're discouraged, you're downcast, and your life seems like it's falling apart... Your biggest problem isn't the problems of this life. Right? We're all, we're all going to die soon and your, your life's going to be over. What matters is what happens after you die. Right? After you die, you're going to stand before the face of God and you're going to be judged for what you have done with your life. And we know that we're all guilty of wrongdoing. And so we've sinned against God. We, we deserve to die an eternal death, suffering in hell. Right? If you don't have Christ, that's where you're going. But Christ came. He, he came to save us from that awful reality, right? He made a way for us to be saved from God's wrath and to receive eternal life. And so all we need to do is to believe in him. Confess your sins to God. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that's the only place, that's the only place you can find true everlasting happiness, right? True joy, true contentment that doesn't go away, right? Once you're in Christ, and once you're in Christ, once you've, once you've come into the light, you will be able to rejoice in the Lord as God intended, and you will be able to live this life free from the cares of this world, preparing for the final day when we're going to stand before God and worship Him in the new heavens and the new earth. But for those who are in Christ, right, we want to come to Christ. That's, 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 that's really the, the first step. That's, that's the most important step. Don't miss that. But, but if you're in Christ, the journey doesn't end there. Right? We must grow up into maturity in Christ. Because when you come to Christ, you, you, you become the primary target of Satan's attacks. Right? And, 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 and so in order to weather the storms of this life and, and all of the temptations and the battles that are ahead of you, you must learn how to, we must learn how to rejoice always. Always. And the way we do this is, is by digging deeply into God and his word and his gospel. Right? Digging deeply into it. And so we need to deepen our knowledge of God and his gospel. Right? One of the reasons why the evangelical church in America has declined and liberalism has risen up is because the church has neglected to commit herself to teach and grow in understanding in all of the doctrines that are clearly taught in Scripture. And instead of doing this, we, we have pitted the Great Commission against a commitment to sound doctrine. We want to win people to Christ, and, and we'll worry about the theology stuff later. 
right? The argument is, well, doctrine, that's divisive. So we don't, we don't, we don't want to turn people away from Jesus, so we'll, we'll just talk about it later. Now, there, there's, there's, a, there's some good motivation in all of that. I think people, we want to get people to the cross, right? We want, to, we want people to come to faith in Christ. But what happens is, is that we get so caught up in trying to generate conversions that we forget about the hard, long-term, day-in, day-out, week-in, week-out work of discipleship. Right? Jesus told us to go and make disciples and to teach the nation's obedience to all that God has commanded us. And if we're winning people to Christ, we have to ask the question, what are we winning them to? What are we winning them to? Right? In America, there are a lot of pastors who want to grow and maintain their own influence, but don't want to grow what God has already put in front of them. Because it's hard, and it's messy, and it's going to cost us a lot. But we have to fear God and not fear man. And the church needs pastors who are willing to dig deep into the truth of the word and bring it out to God's people. Right? As, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, pastors are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We need to dive deep into sound doctrine, to, to, to plumb the depths of Scripture so that we can grow up into maturity in Christ. We need to eat solid food. Solid food. Doctrine is food for your soul. And so the rest of Hannah's prayer, is it's this theologically rich reflection upon the character and work of God who saved her. Hannah has tasted, she has chewed on, she has internalized the greatness, the majesty, and the glory of God and his attributes. And we all know that you are what you eat, right? Right, so, so let's spend some time just tasting the, the richness of these attributes. But, but before we do, whenever we talk about the attributes of God, uh, and, and this is just a, a, a dip into the pool here, but we must keep in mind that God is simple. Right? He doesn't have parts. He's infinite and omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at all times in the fullest sense. So we can't say there's a bit of God here and a bit of God there, more of him here and more of him over there. What this means is that all of his attributes are one with all the others. Right? The scripture says the Lord our God is one. So when we talk about the attributes of God, it's, it's impossible to completely define one attribute to the exclusion of others, right? because they're one. Now that's, that should just leave us completely confounded it's difficult to understand these things, but Hannah, what Hannah does, we, we, must, we must do it. We must dip our toe into it as Hannah does, and we can do it with God's help. So I pray, Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit to understand the reality of these things. So the first bite in this, in this rich food that Hannah is chewing on is the holiness of God. Look at verse 2. She says, There is none holy like the Lord. 
For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. What, what does it mean that God is holy? Well, one way to describe God's holiness is that he's, he's set apart. Right? God is altogether different from anyone or anything else. Right? There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Well, what, what's so different about God? Well, we don't need to, even need to look any further than his name. Right? In human terms, we can usually tell someone's from a foreign country when they say their name to us. When God reveals his name to Moses, he, he gets a bit more than he bargained for. Right? At, at the burning bush, in Exodus 3, verse 14, it's, he says, I am who I am. Right? What does this reveal about God's holiness? Well, this, is, this is a revelation of God's self-existence, his self-sufficiency. Right? Notice God, God doesn't say, I am the son of so-and-so. Right? He says, I am who I am. Right? God did not come from anyone or anything. There, there was no beginning to God. All things come from him. Right? This means he's not dependent upon anyone or anything. He, he exists without cause. Now, if that doesn't completely rattle your brain, just, just listen to this description of God from our confession of faith in, in chapter 2, verse 1. This is what it says. It says, the Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body parts or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. I mean, who, who is like the Lord our God? Right? There, there is no one like him. Our God is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Let's, let's, let's keep eating here. Let's, let's go to the next the sovereignty of God, verses 4 through 8. Hannah says this. She says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth of the Lord's and on them he has set the world. What, it, what does it mean that God's sovereign? Well, there's two aspects of God's sovereignty here. And they are his ultimate authority and his unlimited 
power. Right? God, God has all authority. Right? Since God is holy, he's the, he's the infinite being upon whom all things depend. He has a position of authority over everything else that exists. Right? Verse 8, it says, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He owns them. Right? And on them he has set the world. Right? This is God's world. He made it. He sustains it. He is Lord over it. And he has the right and the authority to do whatever he wants in it. But God's sovereignty also means that he is all-powerful. Right? Because he's all-powerful, he has the ability to do whatever he wants. He doesn't just have the position. He has the ability to fulfill his will. In Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, Our God is in the heavens. Right? That's his position. He does all that he pleases. It's the power. In our, in our text, we see Hannah describe God's sovereignty in his divine providence. And, and providence is the exercise of God's sovereignty or the, or the acting out of his will throughout history. Right? In verse 4, we see the, the Lord is sovereign over the strength of men. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Right? The Lord is sovereign over our wealth and our provisions. Right? Verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. And in verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. Verse 6, we see the Lord is sovereign over our position in life and reputation. Right? He, he brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And we see that the Lord is sovereign over life, he's sovereign over death, and he's sovereign over salvation. Right? The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills, and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, which is the common place of the dead, hell, Hades, and he raises up. Right? The reason why you woke up this morning is because God is sovereign. The reason why you had food this morning is because God gave it to you. The reason why your life is the way that it is right now is because God is sovereign over it. Right? This should make us tremble. Right? In, in, in light of the reality of God, his holiness, his sovereignty, we should become it should become incredibly apparent to us is our unholiness and our sinful rebellion against God, our unwillingness to submit to his will. Right? In, light of, in light of who God is, the logical conclusion we have to come to is that we are sinners worthy of nothing. Right? And if you think that's too dramatic, you don't know what sin is. And the reason you don't know what sin is is because you don't know who God is. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, there is only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. Now, this, this view of God, it, it should make us tremble, but it should not lead us to despair. It should not lead us to discouragement, but actually should lead us to joy, to joy. Why is that? Well, well because our holy, sovereign God is good, right? Hannah, Hannah also rejoices in the goodness of God. What does it mean that God is good? 
Well, there's, I think there's no better way to define the goodness of God than, than all that is wrapped up in the person and work of Christ Jesus himself. Right? He, he's the anointed one that Hannah is looking forward to in this passage at the end of verse 10. Right? King David, he, he does fulfill this passage, but, but he was just a type. He, he was just a mere glimmer of the true king, and that's King Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate manifestation and the fullest expression of the goodness of God. He's God who made himself a man and dwelt among us sinners to die on a cross so that we could call upon his name and have eternal life. He's the good shepherd. John chapter 10, 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Our text even foreshadows this. It says he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. And not not only does Jesus give eternal life. Jesus is the one that takes all that is wrong with this world and will make it right. Right, the word good, it, it, it can mean whole or complete. Right? When, God, when God made creation, he said it was good. It was complete. It was whole. Jesus will bring wholeness to this world when he returns to judge the nations, to put an end to all evil, and make all things new. Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And even this is foreshadowed in our text. Look at verse 9. It says, But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. Right? Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and, and it'll be fully realized when he returns, the goodness of God. Right, that's what our God has done. Our God is holy, our God is sovereign, and our God is good. And it's because of these truths that we can rejoice. Right, Hannah, Hannah's looking up to God and praising him for who he is. Now, now after we've just walked through all of that theology... There may be some thinking, man, that's, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of academic rigmarole. I don't, I don't have time to study doctrine. You, you don't know what I'm going through. Right? This, this suffering that I'm in, it, it just needs to end. No, it doesn't. You don't need that. You need God. I want to share a story told by John Piper written in his book uh, called The Supremacy of God in Preaching. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I think it'll be helpful. Uh, In this quote, he's describing a time that he preached a sermon on holiness. And during that sermon, he didn't give any practical applications. He just talked about how holy God is. And and, uh, so here's, here's what he wrote about after he preached the sermon. He said, So I preached on the holiness of God, and did my best to display the majesty and glory of such a great and holy God. I gave not one word of application to the lives of our people. Application is essential in the normal course of preaching, but I felt led that day to make a test. Would the passionate portrayal of the greatness of God in and of itself meet the needs of the people? 
I did not realize that not before long that Sunday, one of the young families of our church discovered that their child was being sexually abused by a close relative. It was incredibly traumatic. They were there that Sunday morning and sat under the message. I wonder how many advisors to us pastors today would have said, Pastor Piper, can't you see your people are hurting? Can't you come down out of the heavens and get practical? Don't you realize what kind of people sit in front of you on Sunday? Some weeks later, I learned the story. The husband took me aside one Sunday after a service. He said, John, these have been some of the hardest months of our lives. Do you know what has gotten me through? The vision of the greatness of God's holiness that you gave to me the first week of January. It has been the rock that we could stand on. The greatness and glory of God are relevant. It doesn't matter if surveys turn up a list of perceived needs that does not include the supreme greatness of a sovereign God of grace. That is the deepest need. Our people are starving for God. Right, church, we, we need to sink our teeth into the doctrine of God. Now, although John Piper, he doesn't give any practical applications in that sermon, we're going to make some today, okay? We're not done yet. I want to start by asking this question. How did Hannah get to this place of faith? Right, where, where she responded, she, she's in, this is inspired by the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Where, where, where did she get this kind of response from? This God-centered, God-glorifying prayer. It's important for us to understand that, that responding rightly to both the hardships and the blessings that come in this life, they don't happen overnight. Right? Pastor Joey, he, he has said this recently, but faithfulness to the Lord is not something you can cram for. Right? A robust understanding of the doctrine of God that undergirds a response like this takes time to develop. Right? There, there are two things that we see in Hannah, Hannah's life that prepared her for this unique moment where the Holy Spirit inspired her to pray. The first was this. Hannah was committed to worshiping God corporately. Hannah was committed to worshiping God corporately. We see her and her family regularly and consistently committing themselves to a public worship of God. Look at chapter 1. We're just going to read through this. Um, and we will see she's worshiping the Lord. Let's read verses 1 through 7 of 1 Samuel. It says, There was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had, no, had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Verse 4, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. 
Verse 7. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. So we see Hannah and her family, they're, they're worshiping the Lord day in, day out, week in, week out, year by year, even though there's this family strife going on. There's this constant friction that she's experiencing in her family. If you're not here regularly for corporate worship, if, if you're not regularly being fed by God's word under the teaching of a local church, you're, you're starving yourself and your family. Right? The best time to go to church is now. <laughs> not, not when things get bad. And that's a good place to be when it's bad. But the best time is now. The second thing we see is that Hannah was committed to worshiping God privately. It wasn't just corporately. It was also a private commitment. Right? The, the theologically rich prayer that Hannah gives in chapter 2 is the fruit of a constant commitment to prayer and petition before the Lord. Look at verse 9, and we'll read through verse 20. It says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. In due time... Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. We need to be going to the Lord in prayer. That's what Hannah was doing. But what was God doing? What was God doing as she was persevering in public worship and persevering in prayer? God, God was cultivating humility in her, right? He was cracking up that clenched fist that she had on her life until she submitted everything to the yoke of her Savior, right? In verse 3 of chapter 2, she says, Talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Right? She, she, she's learning as she's going and worshiping God and hearing the word proclaimed that he is God, she is not. God is the God who knows better than she does. He holds all things in he, his hand. 
and she does not. And simultaneously, right, not just humility, but he's also cultivating faithfulness in her. Right, we find evidence for this when God gave her Samuel. Right, when she was promised a son, what did Hannah do? Well, she kept worshiping. When her son was born, what did she do? She kept worshiping. Right, she offered her son up to the Lord and kept worshiping God. She didn't turn Samuel into an idol. She never lost sight of her Savior. She kept worshiping. Look at verses 24 through 28 of chapter 1. It says, And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he has worshipped the Lord there. Right, sometimes it may feel as though we, we have the crumbs of life. Right, we live in a fallen world. You may be here and you're, you're, you feel like you're just picking up the pieces of a, sh- of a shattered life. Here's, here's my encouragement to you. Repent of your sin, put your hope in God, and look to Christ by persevering in worship and prayer. And remember this, right? He is the God who raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Right, what do we know we have? Right, we, we have all the blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right? We have the eternal inheritance of the Father in him. Right, we, we have a Savior who says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right, he says, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. God is holy. He's sovereign. He's good. So if you, have a, if you have a barren womb this morning, if you're single and you long to be married, if you're, if you're a husband and you struggle with a difficult marriage, if you're a wife struggling with a difficult marriage or, or an unbelieving husband, if you're, if you're sick and you struggle with your desire to be well, put it on the altar. Give it up to the Lord and rejoice in the Lord now. All right, so if the blessing comes, or if it doesn't, by God's grace, we'll remain faithful and rejoice rightly in the Lord. A few takeaways for us. First is this. Study the attributes of God. Don't believe the lie that it isn't practical for, for daily Christian living to study these things. Second, if you're suffering and have been waiting on the Lord in prayer, Know that the years are not wasted. Your faithful prayers have been heard because we have a sufficient mediator in Christ Jesus and we serve a God who blesses those who seek him, whether it is in this life or in the one to come. Third, if you're suffering, rejoice in the Lord by worshiping every day in your homes and every day with, with, the Lord, with God's church. And four, if you're not suffering, know that Christians are promised to suffer in this life. So prepare to suffer by worshiping God every day in your home and every day, Lord's Day, with God's church. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning just humbled in the presence of your word and and the splendor of your attributes, God. You're holy. You're sovereign. You're good. God, you have revealed these things to us. God, we can never fully understand them. But God, you can tr- we can truly know them. And we can know them because of Christ. We can know them because of who he is, who, what he's done. God, we're so thankful that you can, uh, you grow us, God, by the, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray that you would take this word, plant it deep in us, that it would bear fruit in our lives to the praise and glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.